Welcome to Revelation Rock. Thank you, Danny. Well, it snuck up on me. We were just singing. Thank you, worship team. Thank you for all of the effort that you put in to bring us songs that we can sing this morning. That, uh, that takes a lot to bring a list of songs that are singable and then to rehearse them, practice them, and make them something that we can worship with. So thank you. Welcome to our family room. It's good to see everybody. The Bible says wherever two or three are gathered there, he will be in our midst. And we got more than two, more than three, and it's good to see everybody today. I'm excited about the message that I have today, and I promise it will not be as long as last week. I've got my wife somewhere supposed to be watching my clock for me because I went way long last week, and I am sorry. I apologize. This coming Sunday, a week from today, we got a good friend of mine. You guys, many of you maybe remember Grant Fraley. He's uh, pastors with Jeremiah Johnson down in uh, Kentucky. He is going to be here uh, ministering the word next Sunday. I just, I'm excited to have him. We don't always let everybody know when somebody new is coming, but I just, I want to encourage you to come out. If you got friends or family or anybody you would like to bring, it would be awesome. He's going to have a good word. I'm, I'm absolutely certain of it. I'm excited to have him here. And, uh, Excited to be here next week with all of you guys. So, it doesn't feel like it outside, but fall is upon us. It's, it's coming. All the farmers that I work for, they think it's here. They think, like, we're going to the field tomorrow, which I tell them we're not. It's a little, it's a few weeks out, but fall is here. And we know this, every Friday night, there's electric bills in the city that go up when they kick on the big stadium lights at football fields. We know it's fall when football gets here. No one waits for the leaves to change for it to be fall. It's like, when does football start? Well, football started, and I think about football. I'm not a sports guy, but I know a little bit. I, you know, I might have been born yesterday, but I stayed up all night. I know a few things about a few things, and I know that football is a sport known for its passionate speeches. As, I mean, movies, like football movies, there's like you, you know, locker room speeches and the sideline speeches, the, the speeches, if you can call them that, between coaches and refs after a questionable call has been made or what they believe to be a questionable call. But at the end of a Friday night game or Saturday afternoon or even Monday night football, at the end of those games, the game's over, right? That's, they're comp- it's over. You can be friends with people. We have some people in this church that are... I mean, they're less friendly during the fall, but they're still friends that are on one side or the other of the Michigan-Ohio State line, and they're still able to function. The game is over. Obviously, it's not over yet this year. There's all the buildup now between now and, what is it, November is when they go head-to-head. And so there's some buildup, but at the end of the day, the game's a game, right? It's a, I mean, it's a game. It's fun to watch, and people get pretty passionate I got a couple of brother-in-laws that, it's, I mean, you can talk to them in the middle of a football game. You could ask them anything. They have no recollection of the conversation. They get pretty into it, but, but when it's over, it's over. It's not, there's no eternal lasting value. There's not even any like really years and years long thing from a football game, right? I mean, there's people who get injured in the game and it's like, oh, they got that injury for the rest of their life. I'm not diminishing that, but the game itself is just a game. And we give some passionate 
you hear some passionate speeches. Some of you maybe played football and you can remember some of your coaches, maybe it was more screaming, but you know, giving you a, a message, like trying to encourage and exhort and get you to play your hardest. And you, you could hear some of those uh, speeches from, and sometimes it was a fellow teammate that would give you a, I mean, just go off on your team. We got to, we're going to leave it all on the field. And it's exciting. Man, we're going to maybe win or maybe lose. And, and then whatever, tomorrow is going to be Saturday. But in that moment, there's a lot of intensity. Even though there's no eternal anything to it. It's not even like determining the course of your life. It's like a very, 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 very tiny percentage of people that play high school football will ever play college football. And an even smaller percentage of them will go on to play professional football and have it be like a life thing. This is the majority of the people, it's like over. The end of your last game, your senior year, it's like pretty much over. And even each year up to that, it's just, it's a thing that maybe determines will you start next year or next game or whether, like, but big picture, like we're looking at it most, I don't know if there's anybody in here right now that plays high school football, we're all, it doesn't affect any of us. There's not a lot of us that are currently playing. We're past that. And so often, so often as believers, we view our conversations regarding faith in very similar terms as these football speeches. We'll make an impassioned plea for a moment. At the end of the day, we say things like, well, you know, whatever you think. It's whatever. For some reason, we often lack conviction and certainty. Whether it's, I'm not talking about inviting somebody to church. Like, you know how I feel. I'm great. People want to come. I would love to have people come to church. I enjoy having people here as a part of our family room. But we're not talking about getting people to come to a building on a certain day at a certain time. We're talking about presenting eternity, the gospel. We're talking about presenting life to dead people. And somehow we've lost, we, we don't carry that, oftentimes we don't carry that with urgency. The title of the message this morning if you're writing the title down, Jody, is Orders of the Day. Orders of the Day? That's weird. What do you mean? What's the Orders of the Day? And a few of you may, may recognize that word, those words. But I think about our job as believers. Last week we looked at Romans chapter 12. And at the very end of Romans chapter 12, verse 21, if you want to bring that one up, I didn't give it to you, Jody, but Romans chapter 12, verse 21, we talked about it last week, talks about be not overcome by evil, but rather overcome evil with good. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's kind of the capstone of that chapter, which Paul wasn't writing in chapters, but it's a, it's a fitting capstone for the instructions given in Romans chapter 12. Don't be overcome, but rather Flip that around and overcome evil with good. I thought about that a lot last Sunday afternoon, actually, and it, this whole thing kind of dropped into me on what we're going to talk about this morning. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How do we go about that? How do we go about overcoming evil with good? And, you know, it's one thing to take the message of morality, and there's people carrying a message of morality with some intensity in our world today. 
Try harder, be better. Try harder, be better. God could reject you if you don't try hard enough. But ultimately, that's exhausting and you'll never achieve it. That's why eventually so many people fall away from faith because it's not doable. You'll never on your own be able to overcome evil with good. But what happens is when we get a hold of the gospel, the gospel overcomes the evil in the world. Society will change as the gospel goes forth. Our call, our commission is to preach the gospel to all nations, to all creatures, to all people. The gospel, the good news that Jesus came and exchanged our unrighteousness with his righteousness. And it's a free gift. It's a free gift. Salvation is a free gift. We've been given that gift. That gift is eternal in nature. This isn't something that is a, you know, whatever you think at the end of the day. No, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is only one way. So all of the whatever you think at the end of the day, if you don't think Jesus, you're not going. Eternity hangs in the balance. Eternity has no end, church. We're not carrying something that's like, well, you know, it's like whatever. I, I hope you're on our team. But, you know, if you're on the other team, that's cool too. That's like sporting events, like whatever team you're on. It's like, oh, whatever. You know, we're, we're, we're all citizens. We're all United States. We're all Americans. We're all, we're all from Fulton County. We're all whatever. That's not how this is. The gospel is a defining line of demarcation. It is the forces of good is all summed up in the gospel going forth. The call that we have, the gospel that we preach is eternal. The stakes of our mission are infinitely higher than a game, winning a game or winning an argument, winning a discussion or getting somebody to join your social club or my social club. This is not about a social club. This is irrelevant. The social aspect of this is irrelevant eternally speaking. We carry a gospel, the good news that goes beyond death, hell, and the grave. We have a gospel that is bigger than a graveyard. That is more final than a capstone on a grave. That's big. That's the end of everything here, isn't it? You've, anybody been to a funeral? You go to a funeral and the end of it, every, families always talk. We always talk. At, at, it's like it feels so final. But the gospel, the news that you and I carry around is bigger than that. It's bigger, than, it, it is greater than that. It's overtaken that. In fact, it has the ability to reverse that. You know they seal a grave. A grave is sealed and you put a casket. Number one, they lock the casket, which is always concerning to me. It's like, this seems, but they, they lock the casket. And then when they set the, the I lost the term of it, but the, the vault over top of it, it's sealed. It's not just gravity. It seems like gravity would do it would work but it's sealed because it's forever it's permanent in our earthly terms that's as permanent as anything gets lock it seal it put a bunch of dirt over the top set a piece of granite there it'll weather generations and generations and you'll still read it and yet what we've been commissioned with can reverse that and overtake that. Is there anything bigger than, there's nothing bigger than, there's nothing in this life more final than death itself, and we have the message that is greater than death itself. And yet, when we 
carry ourselves out in the world, how often are we, meh? I mean, I don't want to force it on anybody. Excuse me, you don't want to force it on anybody? Remember the grave? This is bigger than that. You don't want to force it on somebody. And yet, if someone's dying, we would, provide, we would give CPR against their will, wouldn't we? We'll force it on them then. We'll force, man, we're going to force CPR on the, dead, the person that we think may be dying. We're not like, is this something that you're okay with? How do you feel about receiving chest compressions at this point? Is this something that... I don't, they didn't respond, so I'm not going to do chest compressions because I don't know where they're at with it. Maybe they don't want chest compressions. You can look at me like I'm crazy, and that's fine. I've been called worse. We have the greater thing than everything in this world that was entrusted to each of us, placed in broken, cracked, fractured clay vessels that is our lives. We're not perfect vessels. We're not perfect instruments of communication. We get it wrong all the time. We screw up all the time. We don't do the CPR right. We don't administer this gospel properly all the time. But that doesn't mean quit. That doesn't mean, well, you know what? Just as long as you're born again, just stay born again and quiet. Like people are falling down, not breathing. It's like, well, I'm just gonna keep breathing myself. Another one goes, just going to keep breathing myself. That's not what the gospel's like. The gospel's like, hey, I know how to do CPR. I've got CPR. I don't personally know, just on record, I don't know how to do CPR. I'm not trained in that. But I know people that are. And when they are, it's like they got a job legally to do for people. Do we have that intensity, that urgency? Or do we have that like, this is exciting on Sunday before our Sunday afternoon football game. We'll talk about this. And man, let's go out and we're going to go try and win somebody for Jesus. But if not, you know, it's no problem. The game will be over. We can go for breakfast tomorrow at the Waffle House and there'll be another game next week. Or, as the title of my message today reads, The Orders of the Day. On June 6, 1944, the world was at war. Many of you know I love history, and so sometimes I, there's things that get woven into the message from history, and I know that I've talked about D-Day before, but I just want you to bear with me here. There's, this is important. There's a reason that I'm sharing this. On June 6, 1944, the world was at war. For four years at this point, the Nazi war machine had ravaged Europe. It had driven the Allied forces from its shores. It's sad to me that we've gotten so distant from uh, the realities of World War II. Not because I think it was a joyous time, but because I think we've lost some of the meaning of what was fought for, or what happened, and what all took place, and what... Anyways, the Axis forces around the world comprised largely of Nazi Germany, Italy, and Japan. In the, the, Japan was in the Pacific. Their offenses had been strikingly effective. The rest of the world had largely been waging a defensive war for four years leading up to June 6, 1944. On this day, in the darkness of the early morning, General Dwight D. Eisenhower gave his now famous orders of the day to the paratroopers who began the largest amphibious invasion in history. I'm going to read those orders today, and there's a reason for it, if I can find them. This is from the Supreme Headquarters of the Allied Expeditionary Force. The reason I'm reading this, I want you to hear the difference. This isn't a football game. This isn't a, well, hope this works out. We'll try again next week. 
Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which you have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in the free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944, and much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940 and 1941. These nations have united to inflict upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man-to-man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air, their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. These last couple sentences. I have full confidence in your courage, your devotion to duty, and your skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck. Let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking, General Dwight D. Eisenhower. You hear the difference in that? You hear the intensity, how intentional he was. We're going to win Things have changed. Our adversaries are going to fight savagely. They're well-trained, well-equipped also. But we are going to win. On this day, in the darkness of the early morning, he gave those orders, which began the assault, including 7,000 ships. I want you to hear these numbers, not just so you're like glassy-eyed, we're going to get to the end of church, we can go to the fair, or go home, or do whatever. I want you to think about this for a minute. The magnitude of what those orders commenced. 7,000 ships, nearly 12,000 allied aircraft, 12,000 allied aircraft. Now get this, 195,000 naval personnel were involved in the assault on one day. And at the end of that day, 24 hours later, 133,000 Allied troops from the United States, from England, from Canada, and their allies made it to shore. Now, there was a lot of casualties, but they made it. This invasion had dire consequences. Regardless of how the day went, there were going to be consequences. For the Allies, if the day was a loss, the consequences were massive. Potentially the end, but they were for sure massive. It would be years before they could mount an offensive of that magnitude again. For the Axis powers, if the day was lost, as we found out, the consequences were total. This offensive, known as Operation Overlord, was the turning point in World War II. The tone and the cadence of the words delivered to these troops about to embark on one of the most important, deadly, and consequential missions of their lives should be a familiar echo to the attitude that we encourage each other as believers with. This should, we should hear the words that General Eisenhower gave that day, and it should be familiar to words that we hear from each other. That urgency, that intention, that compulsion. There's a spirit in those words. The spirit of victory. He did not intend to lose. In fact, 
and I'm not going to read it, but he, he scratched on a piece of paper his address to the press if it failed. And he did it the night of June 5th, right before, it was almost an afterthought. Loss was not in the forefront of his mind. It wasn't like, I got to be prepared for how I'm going to handle this when it fails. It was an afterthought. He's like, I need to have something scratched out to say if this crashes and burns. But his intentions were victory. He put way more emphasis and energy into his speech, giving the orders to commence than he ever did on his if it fails speech. The if it fails speech is like three sentences, handwritten, scratched on a little piece of note paper. Not a big, it was not where his focus was. Is our focus as believers on when we carry the gospel out, do we put as do we put a lot of emphasis, I feel like, on it being okay that we didn't, like, well, nobody really, I didn't get, you know, I didn't get to share the gospel, but, but I've rehearsed my speech for why I didn't that I give to myself every time. Do you hear this? I hope, I'm, I'm trying to communicate this very clearly. The mission of believers today that we have, you and I have, when we exit this room, the mission that we have is more further reaching than the those are the troops who went to shore on the five beaches of Normandy. The free world hung in the balance. It was a big deal. Don't get me wrong. What we are embarking on right now makes that pale in comparison. Eternity, guys. In one of the last letters that Paul wrote, <clears throat> he wrote to Pastor Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. He writes, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things you have heard from me among many witnesses. Commit these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Get a drink. You, therefore, must endure hardships as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Verse 7, consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. I shared that last verse with a friend yesterday. Verse 7 Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. I may not remember to do it, but I really want to close every message I preach with that thought. Consider what I say. Just consider it. But may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Don't rely on me for understanding. Rely on the Lord to give you Consider it, but rely on the Lord to give you understanding. As I read what Paul wrote to Pastor Timothy, it sounds so similar Almost even more intense than the orders on June 6th, 1944. There's a clarifying that took place here. No one engaged in warfare. We know and we talk about it. We got, everybody remember talking about the armor of God. When you need armor. You don't need armor if you're sitting on the porch. You don't need armor if you're laying at the beach. You need armor if you're going into battle. We talk about that, and we think like once in a while every year we end up in some sort of a spiritual battle. No, no, you're always in one. This is, when we leave, we're here for sure, but when we leave, we're in a spiritual battle. There is a spiritual war that is being waged. It's, I mean, you can choose, and we've talked about this before, we can say, well, I, you know, I, I'm not really, 
I don't really believe in spiritual warfare. That doesn't mean it's not going to affect you, and that doesn't mean you're not in it. You're just probably losing. As a believer, we are in this spiritual battle. No one engaged in warfare. There's a word in the very beginning of that, no one engaged in warfare. We have a choice on whether we engage in it. We can just be caught up in it, or we can be engaged in it. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. Now, I want to point out here, as a few of you I know right now are running review of the last six weeks of conversations with me, and you're saying, I think he's pretty entangled in the affairs of this life. Joel, stop looking at me that way. Joel's staring at me. He's like, that's you. I know. I'm working on this. To not be entangled in the thing. It's so hard because everything going on in this world is very easily entangling us. We get wrapped up in the little things, in the the stuff going on around us. And we lose sight. We step away. We lose that focus of being a commissioned, enlisted soldier. Now, Paul understood He understood what he was communicating to Timothy. He had lived this ever since his conversion. We're going to look at a whole slew of scripture. We're just going to read through bunches of these different verses. This is going to be kind of rapid fire, Jody. And this is, they're all found in Acts 17 and 18. But a few little glimpses. These are some of Paul's missionary journeys and and the way he engaged where he found himself. We'll start with Acts chapter 17, verses 2 and 4. Now, I'm not going to get like exactly where it was geographically with all these. I just want, to, I want you to notice. You'll, you'll sense the theme. You'll pick it up as we go through it. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from scriptures, explaining and demonstrating, demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Chapter 17, verses 11 and 12. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and not also a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. I was supposed to read verse 10 there too. Let me go back and read that. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. And then pick up in 11. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. And they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed and not also and also not a few of the Greeks, the prominent women as well as men. Skip down to verse 16. Now, While Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Verse 17. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Skip down to verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he goes on with that or discussion with them. Verse 1 of chapter 18. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. 
Verse four, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and, produ- and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Skip down to verse nine. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, saying, do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Verse 11, and he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Verse 19 of chapter 18, and he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. That was a whirlwind, and we didn't look at a whole, there's a whole bunch. We could preach on any one of those scriptures that we just read for a long period of time, but I hope you caught the drift. You see what he's doing? Everywhere he goes, he finds himself engaged in conversation, and he doesn't shy from it. You see, one moment that he might have been considering shying from it in verse 9 of 18, but what, what happens? The Lord comes along. He spoke to Paul in the night by a vision and said what? Do not be afraid, but speak. Don't stop. For I am with you. And we've talked about that. We're not going to preach on that. The reason he could continue is because he knew that the Lord was with him. These glimpses of Paul's communication reveal that he possessed an unwavering intensity for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, there's nothing higher, nothing greater than the love, that Je- love of Jesus shed abroad in our hearts. We've been commissioned as representatives of our Savior on, the, on this earth, in our communities, our families, and our workplaces to represent Jesus. There's a kind of a phenomenon in our society, and I'm just going to talk, which isn't notes or sermon, but there's this thing where we have this gospel, and I dare say almost all of you, if not all of you, have read those scriptures sometime in the last decade, every one that we just read. Somewhere along the line in your Bible study, in your own time, or here, we've read a lot of them. And yet somehow, it can just be it's, you know, it's whatever. It's okay. Like, we went to church. It's, just, it's good to go to church. Good, it's good church. Church is good. Let's do church. That's fine. And maybe we got a couple of Christian friends, and we talk about, like, maybe we talk about this a little bit, like, with our, it's like, oh, boy, that was really good. I read this and this verse, and it was encouraging. And, and that's good. That's important. We're supposed to be in communication with each other. But somehow, we've lost the point I feel like, not, not us, I'm not pointing fingers at any of you particularly. As I'm talking about Christianity at large, I feel like we've lost the point of the mission. As we're kind of wandering around, even some of the programs that are really good that are happening, it's like, what is the point of some of this stuff? Do we know what the point of us being here is? Like, why would Jesus not just, when, he, when you receive Jesus into your life and you get born again, just snatch you up and out of here? I mean, that seems logical. You get born again, and now to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and we just instantly were translated, and we're in the presence of God spiritually, and no longer in the presence of the world physically. The only explanation, and it's not an explanation that's just by deduction, it's clearly laid out in Scripture, is because we have a job to do. We have a commission. There's a commission for us here. We are to represent, to present again the gospel that we've become partakers in. There's those today in our, 
in Christianity at large, we, we can get convinced that our mission is a mission of cultural reappropriation. This, this country was founded on Christian Judeo-Christian values, and we need to take it back. Now, I have little kids. I care deeply about that. I care deeply about that. But it's not greater than the gospel going forth. Some people, we get wrapped up and we've got to fix the morals of our culture. We've got to find whatever's wrong. And if we were to go start at this side and go to that side, I bet all of us would have a new and exciting problem with our society and our culture. And they're not illegitimate. They're legitimate issues. I am not taking away from them. But what I will say is they are not greater than the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is nothing greater than that gospel. There is nothing The gospel is not true only to us in our society today. It was true when they were lining people up and beheading them. When they were lining people up and feeding them into the lions. Well, just feed them to the lions. Rome was trying to stamp out Christianity, and what they didn't realize is what they were doing was taking one of those bellows, and they were blowing air on this thing, and it blew all over the world. The gospel's no less true then than it is today. The reality is all of the issues in our society, every single one of them, they will change as the gospel goes forth. It's a byproduct. It's not the point. They'll change. All kinds of stuff will change. Things will roll back like you can't imagine if we get back to the focus. The point, the point of Operation Overlord in Normandy in 1944 was not the five beachheads. You know that? Their point wasn't, we're just going to get to the beachhead. It wasn't, we're going to get to the cliffs above the beachhead. It wasn't, we're going to get to the cliffs above the beachhead and then to the rail line 10 miles back. No, they were, the point was way bigger than those beachheads. Now, in accomplishing their greater mission, they took all five beachheads they took rail lines, they took factories, they took towns, they took streets, and in the process, all kinds of things changed, and the sovereignty of many nations was reestablished. But that wasn't the point. The point was to defeat evil. For us as believers, our commission, the point of us being here is the gospel going forth. Will our school system change? Absolutely. We empower our kids and we equip our kids with the gospel and it'll change. If we just equip them with social agendas and, well, we don't want this in our school or we want that to be different, it's just going to get make a storm. Make, it's great. It's not effective. Give them the gospel. Help them to know how people get born again. Make sure they know they're born again. You'll change the school system. You'll change the families in the school system. You want to change your workplace? Well, I don't think this should be going on in our workplace. Fine. Carry the gospel there. The good news of Jesus who saves. That's what changes people. It's the goodness of God that brings people to what? Repentance. To a changed mind. You know, no one has ever been argued into a changed mind yet. And I've tried. Buddy, I've tried. I, I mean, it's, but you, you, just quitting arguing with somebody is not the same as convincing them. You know that? Have you ever been in an argument with somebody? I think Melinda's out of here, so I can share the story. I, so there's times that Melinda and I have argued. There was one time. And we argued, and I eventually stopped arguing. 
But you know what? My mind wasn't changed. I just stopped arguing for a little while. Now, she thought she won. I found that out the next day. She thought she won. She didn't win. Because I wasn't ever convinced. We argued and we went we was head to head about stuff. It was, again, it was a one time. But in that moment, stopping arguing doesn't change anyone's mind. The goodness of God will change people's minds. The goodness of God in your life. What's the hope that you have? Let that hope out. The hope of the gospel. You can't contain it. When the hope of the gospel gets settled into your heart, you can't contain it. The only, thing that, the only hope the enemy has is to distract you. He can't take your hope. He can't take your eternity, but he can distract you. And that's what, going back to what Paul wrote to Timothy, there's a reason he used the words entangled when he was talking to Timothy. It's easy to get entangled in something. There's a machine uh, that I use periodically. It's called a roll. It's for sheet metal. It's got three rollers, and there's a foot pedal that you run the rolls with. And it's, it's chain drive electric motor, and it spins around and roll, and it doesn't spin super fast, but it's also unstoppable. And the adjustment for this roll is about three feet behind the roll. And I wear work shirts. And a long time ago, I was reminded because I used the roll this last week, but long, long time ago, I was using the roll, and... I reached back to adjust it and I bumped the pedal and the roll grabbed a hold of my shirt. Now it just tore my shirt. It wasn't a big deal. But I think about that. I thought about that picture this week when I was, using, I was rolling a piece of steel and I was thinking about that. I'm like, that is exactly, exactly the picture. I wish I could have videoed that and played the video because it is exactly what Paul warned Timothy about. When you're reaching to make adjustments, when you're, when you're doing the stuff of this life, it wasn't, it wasn't don't do the stuff of this life. It's take care. Take care because you can get tangled up in that. Not by intention, by incident. It was just, it was, it was, close. It was like it was turning and I was close and it just kind of caught me up. It's, how many of you, how many of you can relate? I can testify that is how I get twisted up and tangled up in the stuff of this world. It's not by like I want to go and I want to get like wrapped up in anxiety. That's why I always want to figure out, no one sets out like that. No, it's incidental. It's someone shares something with you. Someone sends you something innocently enough, and you read through it, and it's like, oh, oh boy, sort of feel my temperature going up a little bit there. It's like, well, you know what? You know who I should, I should send that to Joel. I'm going to send that to Joel. And that doesn't bring any peace to Joel. And so both of us are like, we're feeding our shirts into the roll, and then we're getting wrapped up into these, I'm sorry, I'm picking on you. You're right in that perfect spot. There's, it's so easy to get wrapped up in this stuff. And what is that distracted from our mission? I'll just go back to Normandy for one second. There was a story, and I didn't print it off, but there was a story, a testimony of a soldier who jumped off the boat, the landing boat. <clears throat> and they were weighed down with all kinds of gear. I mean, these guys, it was not a great situation. And they didn't know how deep the water was. This guy jumps off, and it's like seven foot deep water, and he's got all his gear on and everything, and so he's, and he writes this all out. He's trying to figure out what to do, 
So he sheds everything. He sheds his shirt, his boots, his helmet, but all he keeps is his ammo belts and his gun. And he swims. And he survives. He gets to the beach and he survives the whole deal. But he gets there and he's got his fatigue pants on, a rifle, and ammunition. Which is the perfect picture when stuff is entangling us. What, is our, what are we here for? What are we here for? In that moment in the water, you're like, what are we here for? Are we here? We need a helmet? Oh, well, it would be good, but we don't need a helmet. It's not going to, we need to accomplish our mission on the beach. We need the rifle and the ammunition. Shed everything else. Don't be entangled. The stuff that weighs us down, the stuff that will hold us under, that will keep us distracted, that'll get us wrapped up, just like that work shirt in the roll. It's like it gets wrapped up in it, and we're not, and now we're all twisted up in the things that, like, wait, wait a second, what am I doing here? I don't, I'm not even real sure what I'm doing here. Have you ever had that moment where, you're, where you wake up in the morning, maybe you make your coffee? I had this several months ago. I made the coffee, and I was sitting at the kitchen table, and I was like, I went to the word I was going to, and I'm like, what am I doing? What am I, like, what is the point? Like, am I preparing a sermon? Am I, what am I? And it was just this, and it, it was a gift because in that moment, I'm like, it, the Lord took that time and just like, you know, the old, uh, the snow globes, you shake them all up and it's like, whoa, what's going on? And then you set them down and it's like, oh, that's what's going on. And I had that moment where it's like, oh Yeah. I don't need this, I don't need this, I don't need this, I don't need this, what I need is this. I need the gospel. What is my mission? What is my commission as a soldier in Jesus Christ? What is the call? What is the thing? Simplify it, clarify it, untangle from the things of this life. Just as the invasion at the five beaches in Normandy in 1944 was much bigger than reappropriating the beachhead or the cliffs, our invasion of our world with the gospel of Jesus is so much bigger than any one issue that's headlining the news today. It's so much bigger than politics. It's so much bigger than everything that is making headlines today. The gospel is about eternity. The gospel is greater than a gravestone. It's greater than a sealed casket with a concrete cover on it. That is true power. There's no power a human possesses that holds a candle to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can stand at the end of your life, at the edge of eternity, with confidence, knowing your creator and knowing you are about to meet him. There is no power in this life that compares to that. Nothing. No power by a dictator or a president or a ruler or a military or a weapon of any kind holds a candle to that. That's yours. That's mine. And we get to represent that to our world. This is, it, I didn't want it to sound like a downer today. I'm excited this is an exciting thing. We're standing at the brink of our world, ready to step into it this week. And each of you, as I look from this side over to here, all of you are going to engage the world in totally different ways. You'll meet people, you see people, you talk to people, some of them that you've known for a whole long time and some of them you just met. I just want you to go confident, knowing 
I don't need that. I don't need that. I'm not going to get tangled up in this. What I need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the only way that we will do what Romans chapter 12, verse 21 says, and overcome evil with good. That is the way we overcome evil with good, is we go back to the gospel. The simple gospel that's greater than death, hell, and the grave, and we carry it with boldness. I told you it was going to be shorter today. We're going to get out of here in time to make it to the milkshake stand before the rush. If you would stand with me, I got a declaration I want to declare over us as we leave today. Revelation Rock, this morning we declare that we are believing believers, children of promise according to the seed of Abraham. And we're here for such a time as this, to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a crooked and perverse generation. Ours is not a mission for the faint of heart. There will be opposition and hardships, and they may abound in this life, but we take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. The pressures of this world may seem to mount, but we encourage ourselves in the word of God, which reveals that the greater pressure re- resides on the inside of us. The apostle John wrote that greater is he who is within us than he who is within the world. And so with this in mind, we step to the call with the boldness of lions. As Proverbs 28.1 says, the wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous, those who have a legal right to stand before God, they are bold as a lion. Bow with me if you would. Father, I thank you so much for today, for this opportunity that we have to remind ourselves, to recalibrate ourselves, to untangle ourselves. Lord, I thank you so much for the commission that you've given us. Thank you that you are long-suffering, that you are patient. You are always with us. You've promised to never leave us and nor forsake us. Even when we lose our way and we get caught up in the little things, we get caught up, twisted up in the issues of this life, making adjustments, Lord, I thank you so much that you are with us, you are patient, that your gifts and your callings are without repentance. Lord, I thank you that you don't take them back. Those who you've called, you've equipped. Father, I just pray that that reality would settle into the hearts and minds of the believers that are here today. That they would be confident in their call. They would trust you for their equipping. They would step out with the boldness of a lion. Lord, I thank you so much that you are always and only good. Thank you, Lord, that this gospel is greater than death, hell, and the grave. Thank you for the hope of the resurrection of eternity and that this isn't just self-help class. This isn't just try and make your life a little better by doing the right thing or saying the right thing, but Lord, that we carry an eternal gospel with the weight of glory behind it. Pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. You guys are dismissed. Have a wonderful week. And I never get to say this, but have a wonderful rest of your morning.